right. Well, thanks so much to the team leading us this morning. Hopefully you're encouraged about singing about the cross. Doesn't get any better than that, does it? We got victory in Jesus' name is what I'm talking about. Hey, if you got a Bible, you can clap. You can clap, not clap. Let's not clap. Save it for later, all right? I got a few in the sermon. Got a few more coming to you, and I'll let you know, and then you just let it rip. Hey, uh, turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 14. Acts 14, we're heading verse-by-verse study through this incredible story of Acts. And as you know, Acts is a lot about missions, a lot about how the Holy Spirit gives us power to proclaim the gospel in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so the title for this morning's sermon is A Bible, a Passport, and a First Aid Kit. As we get into our text this morning, you'll realize that's what Paul and Barnabas need in addition to the Bible and into the, um, to their passport traveling from country to country. They might need a first aid kit as well. What we're doing is a part one. This, this sermon this morning will be part one, part two, covering the entire chapter, chapter 14 of Acts. And so this morning, we're just going to look at verses 1 through 18, and then we'll cover 19 through 28 next week, which already means you got to come back. So if you're here today... You already just say, hey, I'm here next week. I don't want to just get half a sermon. I want the whole thing. So hopefully we'll see you next week as well. Acts 14, verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, "'Stand upright on your feet.'" And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them." 
God, we're grateful to be able to dive into Acts chapter 14 this morning. We pray for your help to cover, to learn, to, to, uh, to, to apply by the Spirit's power, truth and challenge and encouragement that would help us to be a bold witness in this world. And we desire to humbly lay ourselves before you, almighty God, and that you would fill us today with your Holy Spirit and that you would encourage us today with bravery and might and courage that we would be those ambassadors, we would be soldiers, we would be witnesses for you in all that life brings. Allow us today to learn much and to live it out for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. On Wednesday, October the 16th, 2019, police in Algeria closed one of the country's largest Protestant churches of about 700 members. The next day, state officials closed two other church buildings as a systematic campaign to close Protestant or independent churches in North Africa, where Algeria, Muslims account for about 98.2% of the population. Pastor Salah, the leader of the church, was informing church members at a midweek prayer meeting that he had received the notice that the church would be closed when the police interrupted the service and ordered all church members to leave. Those who resisted were dragged outside, and at one point, the police beat Pastor Salah and a few other leaders that were also injured. Open doors, reports, that the church has been sealed shut as police officers made statements that this church and those like them will be put out of business. One of the elders told Open Doors at the time that an officer had remarked, quote, you can film as many as you want and send those videos to the United States. Nobody can change our determination to close your churches. Despite growing pressure from the state, Algerian church leaders told Open Doors that they were seeing signs of a new revival. Almost all Algerian believers have come from a Muslim background. Muslims are coming to us, said an evangelical pastor whose name could not be mentioned for safety purposes. Yes, the government is now the big giant in front of us. The authorities close churches. That is their new tactic. And they put a lot of pressure on leaders and elders. But we are well organized in prayer. We pray from 6 p.m. until midnight. And we are seeing signs of a new revival. Muslims, he said, are coming to us. They are tired and some clearly and openly say, we want to know Christ. The church in this region is growing, he says. 20 years ago, there was less than 1,000 believers all over the country, and that number has now grown to about 35,000 in the visible church, and maybe even more in that number with the still secret, not visible church. The pastor continues, in the area where we work, there are some 500 people we're in contact with. Half of them are Arabs. In the whole country, the number of converted Arabs is now about 4,000. There are many believers who don't go to church, but instead watch Christian TV. Sometimes we meet in a coffee shop. The church in Algeria wouldn't have space to receive all those people. Just a reminder to us, right? Every time there's awful, hard persecution, God's up to something good. It was the blood of the martyrs that was the seed of the church. And whenever we go through our darkest times and our greatest trial and our greatest tribulation, oftentimes God is doing something incredible 
And that's what we see over and over and over again on repeat here in the book of Acts. The persecution that we read about in Acts is still going on in the world that we live in today. And we know that there's challenges that are happening, but we also know that we see here in this text that Paul and Barnabas, all they really need on their first missionary journey is a Bible, a passport, and a first aid kit. They have been faithful to preach the gospel. They have traveled a fair bit, and they have been threatened and harmed on multiple occasions. And so we'll examine this chapter in two parts, this two-part sermon with three major headings. Number one, perseverance in Iconium, verses 1 through 5. Then we'll look at perseverance in Lyconia, verses 6 through 21. And then we'll see perseverance in their return trip to Antioch in the second half of verse 21 all the way through verse 28. Let's start with our major heading, number one, Perseverance in Iconium. And your first blank, if you're taking notes, simply says evangelistic preaching. Evangelistic preaching. Verse one, now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Now, up to this point, we've been reading about how the Holy Spirit set Paul and Barnabas aside for the work that he had called them to. And they were sent out from their home church at the time, which was the church of Antioch, located in Syria. And if you remember, they then traveled by boat to the Isle of Cyprus, Cyprus, and they landed at Salimus, where they did gospel ministry. Then they continued across the island to Paphos, where they faced a false prophet by the name of Bar-Jesus and rebuked him as a son of the devil. Then we looked at how Paul and Barnabas set sail to Perga, which was in Pamphylia, and at this point, John Mark left them, but they continued all the way up into the hills to Antioch, Pisidia. The second half of chapter 13 records Paul's longest sermon in the New Testament, which was all about Israel's history, and then he proclaimed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Gentiles responded with great excitement But the Jews were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul. And at this point, you read, if you look up at the very end of chapter 13, verse 46, Paul says, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Paul was called to be a light to the Gentiles. And even though the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, the Jews drove Paul and Barnabas out of their district. So Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet and headed to Iconium. And what was the attitude of these new believers, these new disciples at this point? Well, verse 52 says, and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Now, you got to like that, right? Again, it's like good things are happening, challenging things are happening, good things are happening, and that's the cycle that they're going through. But notice as a result of all the persecution they were facing in in, uh, Antioch, Pisidia, before they head to Iconium, the end of chapter 13 again, where we left off last time, verse 52, they're filled. They're filled with joy. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, being filled with joy and the Holy Spirit is the best possible thing that could happen to any believer. You would think that after all this difficulty that Paul and Barnabas and the other disciples of Christ, uh, all that they had faced, you would think they would be filled with maybe frustration or fear or uncertainty. 
but they weren't. They were filled, verse 52 says, with joy. They, they were filled with the joy of the Lord, which means that their focus was on Christ and not on their circumstances. You just look at your circumstances, you get discouraged that quick. You put your eyes on Jesus and you realize the heavens declare the glory of God. That's the world that we live in. Our God is in control. And so they had that kind of joy. They continued to look to Christ. And then the text says again, verse 52, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, which means they're walking in obedience. They are walking by faith. They are trusting and obeying God's word. They had power from on high to face their challenges and to be overcomers through Christ. So now that we enter into chapter 14, verse 1, it says they are now in Iconium, and they continued their ministry. They entered the Jewish synagogue, verse 1 tells us, as was their custom. They started with the Jews first, and then they would see where it went from there to the Gentiles. And Iconium was a cultural melting pot of native Phrygians, Greeks, Jews, and Roman colonists located 80 miles southeast of Pisidian Antioch where Paul and Barnabas were in the previous chapter. Two things I wanna point out to you just from verse one, it's not in your notes, but just two observations if you look there. First, notice how it says they entered together. Just something about that rings true to my heart. They entered together. Part of the success of Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey is that they stayed unified. They supported one another. Now, there's issues that are going to come up, as we've already discussed, about John Mark. But for this journey, they say, hey, you know what? We're together. We have to have each other's back we support one another, and we're unified in cause and in purpose to preach the gospel. And a lot of challenges happen on the mission field because of conflict between two missionaries who can't keep it together. We've got to be reminded that if the mission of the gospel is going to spread as far and as wide as God would have us take it, we've got to find unity in our mission and our purpose. Now, we all have different preferences. We all have differences. I get that. If you're married, you know that you're unified, but sometimes you get a little bit off when, when you make a wrong decision, husbands. When you make a wrong decision, you get a little bit off of the center where you need to be, so get back on track, all right? And we're just saying in missions, it's like we got to stay together. I can't tell you how many times as a senior pastor, as I talk to our missionaries and support them, pray for them, and talk to them, that one of their biggest trials is usually not what they're facing in the culture, it's what they're facing in the church. It's what they're facing with others on their mission team. And it's just a reminder of the importance of us to stay together, to preach the gospel at all costs with one mind and with one motive and with one purpose to preach the gospel. And that's what Paul and Barnabas had here on this first missionary journey. They had the same strategy and they had the same approach and they had the same desire to see people come to know Christ. Praise God for that, that they were keeping it together. As Ephesians 4, 3 through 5 says, they were eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call and one Lord and one faith and one baptism. It's all right there in verse one. They, they entered together. They're working together in this mission. The second thing I wanted to point out to you about verse one is it says here that they entered into the Jewish synagogue and they spoke in such a way. 
You see that? They, they spoke in such a way. This wasn't just normal, everyday kind of speech. This wasn't a whisper. This was more of a roar. This was more of a proclamation. This was more of speaking with authority and with some unction and some conviction. They spoke in such a way that a great number, verse 1 says, of both Jews and Greeks believed. They, they spoke with authority. They spoke with enthusiasm. They spoke with conviction. Remember what the Jews said about Jesus in John chapter 7, verse 46? No one ever spoke like this man. Take note that those who had been with Jesus spoke in a similar manner. When Paul and Barnabas spoke, things happened. When they preached, people responded. When they evangelized, people got saved. And this verse says that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. This was an amazing work of God. This was God granting repentance and God granting faith. This was a great response to the gospel being preached. Our job is to preach the word. That's our job. Hopefully you do it with a little conviction and a little enthusiasm and excitement because of the message of truth that it is. It's God's work to bring in the harvest, right? And he did here in Iconium a great response there in verse one. And then we see in verse two, your next blank, an embittered opponent. The embittered opponents of verse two, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Does it sound familiar? They had just had the same thing happen to them as we reviewed there again what happened in Antioch. In fact, if you look back up at verses 42 of the previous chapter, this is from last time we were together as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them next Sabbath. Remember I told you that they preached such a fiery sermon, Paul did, about the Old Testament and then he came full circle with the gospel and people were like, we can't wait to hear you next week. We, we can't wait. Verse 43, after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, so when church let out, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So they were having conversations about it all week. Verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Verse 45, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And that's why they ended up leaving Antioch and coming to Iconium. The same thing is now starting to happen to them at Iconium. Verse 1, it's like, whoa, we got a great day preaching the gospel, people getting saved. And then all of a sudden, the unbelieving Jews, verse 2 says, they stir up the Gentiles. They poison their minds against the brothers. And so while many people had embraced the teaching and believed, the unbelieving Jews are stirring up controversy. The word here, unbelieving, means to disbelieve or to disobey. We understand that to reject the gospel is a sin. To reject the gospel is to disbelieve the truth of God. Remember, God calls all people everywhere, Acts 17.30. He calls all people everywhere to repent. And so to not be to believe, to not believe, to not obey, to not repent is a sin. A lot of times people think to not believe as a skeptic is some type of intellectual, noble place. Well, I just don't know if I can believe that. When I hear that, I just say, hey, brother, you're in sin. I probably shouldn't call my brother, right? But I'm like, hey, man, you're in sin. 
well, I just don't know. I mean, I, I have to do some more. Hey, just, just, know, just know right now, you're in sin against a holy God who calls you at this very moment to bow your knee before him and that to, you would turn from your sin and turn to him. That is the, the, the onus that God puts on us that creation pushes us to the special revelation of scripture and we're proclaiming that special revelation of scripture there to repent and to believe. Instead, the unbelieving Jews are poisoning, verse two says, they're poisoning their, mi- their minds. They're poisoning the message. Uh, this, this, this means, this word poison means to cause harm. It means to cause someone to think badly about another. It means to embitter. And as it had happened at Pisidian Antioch, the missionaries preaching gradually polarized the population of Iconium. And that is the expected result when the gospel is powerfully and accurately preached. There's always going to be polarization. The word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. The gospel cuts like a knife. The gospel divides truth from error, light from darkness, and eternal blessings from eternal hellfire. You cannot have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. You cannot profess Christ with your lips and yet deny him with your actions. You cannot serve both God and popularity. So in this context, it begins to get real as the two sides begin to oppose each other. The unbelieving Jews were no doubt trying to smear Paul and Barnabas. They were trying to accuse them of wrongdoing and and presumably they attacked their character, their credibility and their message. This is not unlike our society today that would try to smear good biblical preaching, to mock Christ-centered evangelism, and to make fun of any follower who stands on the Bible, any true follower of Christ who stands on the Bible in the midst of this LGBTQ+, my body, my choice, love is love culture. You understand they hate what you stand for. They hate everything that you preach. They hate the fact that we're trying to preserve life. They hate it. So don't expect the world to cheer you on. Don't expect to be respected by your peers. And don't ever apologize, by the way, for preaching heaven over hell, light over darkness, eternal life over death, the Bible over error, and Jesus over the devil. You got nothing to apologize for. You lift high the name of Jesus and let him do his work through you. That's what Paul and Barnabas are doing as we see your next blank. God gives them enduring grace, enduring grace, verse 3. So they remain for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So we could ask again, so what do they do? Verse 1, it's going great. Verse two, it's starting to get shut down. Verse three, they're like, hey, we ain't done yet. Oh, we just getting started. That's what they're saying, right? Oh, you're going to push back on us? We're going to be here a long time. You thought you're going to just run us out of town like that? Not so quick. The word therefore implies a connection with what's happening in verse two. So they remain. There's persecution. So they, in light of that, they remain for a long time. The opposition that Paul and Barnabas faced caused them to double down. They didn't recant. They didn't soften the message. They didn't try to move to the center. They doubled down. It caused them to to want to stay longer and to fight harder to win the minds and the hearts of the people with the truth that they preached and the scriptures that they taught. Paul and Barnabas were energized to speak boldly. 
Again, it says they did it for a long time. That word long time means sufficient. It means that they did not flinch, but stayed for a sufficient amount of time that it would have taken in order to accomplish what God called them to do. They did not tuck their tail and run, but they continued in other places in the New Testament. That phrase long time is used in the Bible to refer, some commentaries say, to any time period between one month and three years. So somewhere between one month and three years, most likely it was a few months, most people think, that they continued to stay there a long time for a few more months speaking boldly. Now boldness is that essential quality without which nothing significant can be accomplished for the sake of the gospel. Boldness is what enables believers to persist in the face of opposition. Boldness should be the quality of every Christian and every defender of the faith. Boldness certainly defined the Apostle Paul. He wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. That's just a character that Paul has. To declare the gospel with boldness takes special resolve. It takes courage. It takes a special kind of bravery. It is engaging in spiritual warfare. It's discussed in in Ephesians 6, that famous passage or chapter on spiritual warfare and putting all our armor on. And then in verse 19 of chapter 6 of Ephesians, it says, and also for me that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the tradition of Paul and Barnabas. It never says that he, he proclaimed it softly that he was gentle, mild-mannered man. There's a time that we need to be gentle. Christ was meek and lowly. There's no, there's no shame in that. There's a time that we need to have that strength under control. That's not a feminine characteristic. It's a godly characteristic. But there's also a time when you're confronting fire with fire. You're bringing heat to what's going on, and that's the way that they approached this particular situation as Paul and Barnabas were speaking boldly for the Lord. They, they bore witness to the word of his grace. And so what happened in verse 3, it's like God's like, okay, I got you boys back. You guys are sticking your neck, your neck out a little bit. I'm going to give you a few miracles. Boom. Let's take that. We'll give you a few signs and wonders to show I'm with you. I'm not with these guys, I'm with you guys, so I'm going to affirm what you're doing. you got to love that in verse 3. As they're speaking boldly, they are bearing witness of the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. God granted signs and wonders to be done by Paul and Barnabas. These amazing acts of God's divine power through them affirmed that they spoke for God. They didn't speak on their own. They didn't have their own story, their own wisdom, their own made-up religion. They spoke from the scriptures about God's wisdom and God's knowledge. They were not there to promote their own achievements or their own accomplishments. They were there to proclaim the beauty and the majesty of God. They weren't there giving a TED Talk. They weren't there to do a book signing. They weren't there to, to speak at a press conference. They were there to speak for God. And the message of the gospel comes from, verse 3, the word of his grace. 
It comes from the scripture. It comes from the Bible. It's all about the mercy that God grants to unworthy sinners so that sinners can be reconciled to him. And the kind of grace, this kind of grace is the heart of the gospel. That's what's important to see is it's, it's the word of grace that is being taught. And as it's being taught, then you have miraculous signs and wonders that were bringing confirmation to the message of grace for sinners that Paul and Barnabas spoke that this message was truly from God. Now, you don't have to have the signs and wonders, but in the New Testament, regularly, there were signs and wonders present and available, particularly throughout the book of Acts. And so Paul discusses the connection between miracles and faith a few times. One place would be Galatians 3, 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. In other words, God provides the power of miracles through faith and not by the works of the law. The affirming nature of miracles is also attested to in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. Saving faith, you need to be reminded this morning, saving faith is not based on miracles, but faith can be encouraged by miracles. And the important thing is that the gospel that was preached in the word of his grace did a work of grace in many hearts. So in other words, the, the point of the passage isn't to keep chasing all the signs and wonders that were done. No, it's a marvelous thing. We've looked at a number of them through Acts chapter 2 and throughout the rest of Acts. But here it's just saying, hey, this is just a little accent mark. This is a little reminder that God is still doing his work. But his work is coupled together with the preaching of Christ and the preaching of the resurrection and the preaching of gospel and the believing of these new believers. And, and so God gave enduring grace to Paul and Barnabas and as he did that to Paul and Barnabas, you know, the same God will give you enduring grace today. Whatever situation you're in this morning, God may choose to do a miracle in your life this morning. or in your, He could do a miracle at any time, right? Or God may simply comfort you and sustain you through your trial by the word of his grace. God is at work on the good days and on the bad days. And God wants you to know today that he has not forgotten you and that he will never abandon you and he will never let you down. If you need to speak up to be a bold witness for him, may God give you the boldness to do that. If you need to speak up at work or at home or in any situation, if you're facing persecution or opposition of any kind, let me encourage you this morning, don't run, don't hide. Remain where you are and be bold in the power of the Spirit, and rest in the word of his grace. That's what they're doing. And then we see in verses 4 through 5, your next blank says, entangled division, entangled division, verses 4 through 5, but the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them and then we'll learn in verse 6 and 7, they move to the next place. But just looking at verse 4 and 5, they're still entangled in division. As marvelous as the message was and as powerful as the confirmation of the signs and wonders were, there was still opposition from the Jews. And again, like what happened in Pisidian Antioch, Iconium became a polarized, smoldering cauldron. 
It would not be long before the city would erupt in a response to the confrontational preaching of Paul and Barnabas. So verse 4 says, some sided with the Jews and some sided with the apostles. Again, you must pick a side. You must go to the right or you must go to the left. You must go with the word of grace or you must go with the works of the law. You must go with the grace of God or you must go with the legalism of the devil. And Luke refers to both Paul and Barnabas as apostles. Just a special note here on verses uh, on verse. Five, where it says that they um, are both uh, apostles that are, that are moving on. Where, where is it? Apostles. They're divided. Oh, at the end of verse 4, there it is. Uh, sided, some sided with the apostles. And so I just want to make a special note of that because there's a little confusion that maybe Barnabas was an apostle. The question would be, in what sense is Barnabas referred to as an apostle here? Well, he obviously was not an apostle in the same way and in the same sense that the 12 apostles and Paul were to be a true apostle with a capital A, you had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected, resurrected Christ, and you had to personally be called and appointed by him. And as far as we know, Barnabas did not qualify on either account. He was not commissioned directly by the Lord Jesus, and he was sent out by the church. The Holy Spirit was also involved. Uh, Barnabas was an apostle more in the general sense of the term. The word apostle means messenger, and so Barnabas was not an apostle, what I call with a capital A, but he was an apostle with a lowercase a, and he was to be a messenger of the gospel. Just like the word diakonos, which is used for the word deacon or servant, when the word diakonos is used, you have to see in the context whether it's referring to a, a specific office, like we have elders and deacons, or it's referred to to, to a particular servant, like in Acts 16.1, when, when the word diakonos is referring to Phoebe. So you have to look in the context to see, is this a particular office, or is this just talking to a person? Same thing with the word apostle. The reason I say that is because some sects of Christianity will raise up the idea of apostleship as a super authoritative position, as if they had the same authority that were given to the 12 and to Paul. And they would maybe make the argument from Barnabas that, see, Barnabas was an apostle, so that, that office continues today. And I would just say that you would have to be very cautious. I don't see that continuing today for the reasons just cited. I see that as being, again, a general term as a messenger that was there with Paul, kind of under his apostleship as a close associate, but Barnabas himself was not a capital A apostle. There are no capital A apostles out there today. As soon as they say they are, beware. Because the, the only thing that they might have off with their theology is not the capital A, but it'll be a whole lot of other things that follow suit that you will be able to recognize when you compare that with Scripture. Verse 5 here says that when an attempt, again, was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. So there's some attempt made here. And so now we're seeing that the smoldering opposition to Paul and Barnabas eventually burst into a flame. The word attempt here, it means a rush or an assault. The same word is used in Acts 19.29 when it describes a full-scale assault of Paul's companions by the mob in Ephesus. So no doubt, a similar scene of mob violence took place at Iconium as the unruly crowd sought to harm Paul and Barnabas. And so the attempt to stone them proves that the instigators were Jewish unbelievers because stoning was a Jewish form of execution, usually done for blasphemy. 
the unbelieving world would love to crush you and your testimony and the testimony of truth wherever it can. It had come down to that in Iconium, even though they stayed for a long time, eventually the side of the unbelieving Jews seemed to kind of, if you will, went out on, uh, on the movement and on the, the, the upper hand here. And that's how the world tries to work in our lives and our hearts today. The unbelieving world would like to crush the testimony of truth whenever it can. The world wants to take prayer out of schools, the Ten Commandments out of the courthouse. As we heard a few weeks ago, the Gideon Bibles out of hotels. The world wants to remove biblical language from the definition of marriage. Biblical arguments from the field of science and biblical preaching from the pulpit of the church. The world wants to kill the unborn child, to change the gender of a person, and to promote physician-assisted suicide. We are entangled in a division in our culture today, but may God give us strength to persevere by the word of his grace. What side are you on? The word of his grace will tell you. It's only the scripture. It's not about popular opinion. It's not about how big is the church. It's not about how charismatic is the leader. It's about the word of his grace. You better take the scripture and you better study it and you better ask God and the Holy Spirit to help you interpret it correctly so that you can live it out in a way that would promote God and his glory. Well, we gotta move on to our second heading this morning, now we see the perseverance not only in Iconium, but also in Lyconia. In Lyconia A, your next subpoint says the preaching of the gospel, verses 6 and 7. So they, they learned of it, the fact they were about to be stoned, verse 5. And then they fled to Lystra and Derbe, which are cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So Paul and Barnabas were bold, but they weren't foolish. When they became aware of what was happening, they fled to Lystra and to Derby. And this escape was an act of prudence, not an act of cowardice. This escape was something that God had called them to because the point was that nothing more could be done in God's design and plan for their mission trip in Iconium. So now God is leading them on down the road to their next stop. They went there to preach the gospel, verse 7 says. That's why they wanted to keep going. They, they finally fulfilled their time in Iconium. Now they're moving on to Lystra and to Derby to preach the gospel. They went there to proclaim the good news. And I love how the text says there, they continued to preach the gospel. This was their custom. This was their passion. This was their greatest desire. They just continued to do what they do. That's what they do. You're a Christian. You're a follower. You continue to lift high the name of Jesus. I loved hearing from my son, Nate, this week. I was talking to him a little bit about his trip to Utah. And one of the things that stuck out to me is he's like, Dad, you can just share the gospel with anybody. You know, that's the, and I, you just kind of hear that. I'm like, yeah, of course you can. And I just started thinking about that. You can just share it with anybody. I'm like, what was your favorite part of the trip? And he's like, well, I enjoyed knocking on some doors, and we were in Mormon country, and we were inviting them to church and looking for opportunities. But what I really liked was going to BYU, because when we were on the campus of BYU, they were ready to talk. The young college kids there were a little bit more open to have a little dialogue, and we were able to kind of get a little further into some good conversations. Hey, Dad, you can just share the gospel with anybody. I love that spirit. And sometimes we forget about that. Us as older saints, we just get, we just get accustomed and we just get comfortable. And we got to make it our habit 
It ought to be a habit. We continue to preach the gospel. We continue to walk by faith. We continue to do what it is that God's called us to do in your own sphere of influence, in your own family, at your own workplace, with the same neighbors that live on either side of you. We got to continue to preach the gospel. And that's exactly what's going on here. And sometimes people ask the question, why doesn't God just save a Christian and then take them straight to heaven? some point that's entered into everybody's mind. Why doesn't God just save us and then take us to heaven? Because this world can be really tough. And the answer again is what we're talking about. He left you here for his glory to be a witness for him. And you can be a witness for him in suffering. And you can be a witness for him in persecution. And you can be a witness for him by serving in this church. And you can be a witness for him by serving in your family. And you can be a witness for him by reading your Bible and praying and taking part of evangelism. This ought to be the normal conviction and the normal practice of all of us as believers. A woman once approached the great evangelist, D.L. Moody in Chicago, to air a grievance. And the woman said to him, Mr. Moody, I don't like the way you do evangelism. Well, ma'am, let me ask you how you do it, Moody asked. She replied, I don't. Moody responded, well, I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. Right? So many Christians, me included, shrink away from our call to evangelize the lost. Some of the main excuses are things like, well, I, I don't know what to say. Or I don't have the gift of evangelism. Or isn't that kind of the, the work that pastors and missionaries do, not just regular people? Or I, I'm more of a teacher than an evangelist. Or I, I talk about my faith if someone asks me, but isn't it rude to start the conversation? I mean, we can find as many excuses as we want. The point is that God's called us to, to make it our continual practice to be evangelizing as we endure in this world that we live in. As we heard a few weeks ago, God's called us to be a part of the Great Commission. Remember that? We had our guest speaker up here preaching on the Great Commission saying, hey, it's a command for you all to be involved in. Right? Whether you're praying, whether you're sending, whether you're going, it's not an option. I love that message. Second Timothy 4, 5 says, as for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering, do the work of an evangelist fulfill your ministry. Well, that's part of the ministry of all of us. And I get it. Maybe some are a little bit more gifted or seem to have a knack for that. But the point is, whether it's big or small, you're sharing the gospel. We all have the opportunity to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Don't think evangelism equals Billy Graham. You know, God bless his soul, right? Think evangelism means me as a follower sharing with someone else about Jesus. That's evangelism. And I pray that we would be a church that would continue in evangelism, no matter who we are, where we are, what kind of gifts we have, no matter what we're doing, that we would keep 1 Peter 3.15 in mind, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you, yet do this with gentleness and respect. That's a, a great verse that we think about. We've got to always be ready to make an, a defense, to, to preach the gospel, to defend the faith. Look now, if you will, at verses 8 through 10. Your next blank says, the healing of the man crippled from birth. We already know that they've been doing some signs and wonders. 8 through 10 tells us of one. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. 
He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeking, excuse me, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Love this this account, this story reminds me of what we read earlier in Acts chapter 3, where Peter healed the lame beggar at the gate of the temple, the gate that was called the beautiful gate. There was a man there, if you remember, who was asking for alms for the poor, and Peter, together with John, directed their gaze at him. And Acts 3, 6 says, but Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I have to you, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And what happened? The man went walking and leaping and praising God. It's an incredible account. And now we see in the same place here, it's kind of like Paul. Peter did it through the power of God. Now Paul here at Lystra did a very similar miracle from this, for this man from God. I mean, he could not use his feet. The text says that in order to make us understand this was a permanent, congenial problem from birth. There's no way this is going to be reversed. No amount of therapy no amount of like, you know, uh, nice uh, hot salt baths in, in the Dead Sea or all the other Ahava lotion uh, is going to cha- change this. If you've been to Israel, you know what I'm talking about, right? But nothing's going to change this. This is, this is something that only God can do. That's the point. He's been crippled from birth. He had never walked. He's listening to Paul speaking. The text hints at the fact that he's, he's likely beginning to be transformed by faith in the gospel, and he was, he was most likely becoming a believer. The text doesn't say that, but it seems like we're leaning in to him probably becoming a Christian. And as Paul's looking at him, the Holy Spirit gave him the discernment, the ability to see, you know what, I think I'm seeing faith in this man. I'm seeing the faith that this man is about to be made well. Healing is a gift of God, but it requires faith. We must have faith that God can and will heal all of those whom he desires. And so as a church, while we are careful about how we understand the spiritual gifts for today, we're also quick to be reminded that God can and does heal at any time that he wants. And so we understand that Jesus said to the woman, talking about having faith enough to, to, uh, to heal this man, Jesus said to the woman who touched his garment, who had the issue for several years, Matthew 9, 22, Jesus turned, seeing her, said to her, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Jesus said to blind Bartimaeus, Mark 10, 52, Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. Jesus said to one of the 10 lepers who came back to say thanks to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. I'm just saying, I know, I know we're not a full-blown charismatic church, and I don't mean that disrespectfully, but I'm saying, hey, you gotta have faith. Do you believe God can heal? Yes. Do you pray for healing? Do you have faith to pray that God would move mountains and heaven and earth to do that which would glorify him? And at the same time, are you resting in his sovereign choice to sometimes heal and to sometimes not heal? Because what's the point? The point isn't your outer man. The point is your inner man. The point isn't that you would have a nice, healthy life. The point is that you would have a long, restful eternity. And the point of the miracle that's done here is not only to heal a crippled man, We love that. That's the mercy of God and the blessings of God and the care of God for this man. But the point was also to say, now on top of that, 
on top of that, I'm going to talk to you about something way more exciting, way more encouraging, and that is that you can be saved. Not only does God heal the outer man, he does a miracle in the inner man. When I was a charismatic for many years, I'm sorry, I'm just kind of going off on this, it just seemed like to me that the focus was usually on the outer man. It was usually on, oh, you could be healed. Oh, you could be healed. Oh, you could be healed. And if you're not healed, you don't have enough faith. And it just kind of kept sticking right there all the time. And I, and I just wish and would encourage my brothers and sisters to just be reminded this morning that it's not about the outer man. It's never been about the outer man. It's about your heart being transformed by the gospel. And if you want to pray for a miracle, pray for the salvation of the lost and pray that God would use you as a witness and a testimony to the beauty of redemption through Christ. That's the greatest miracle that could ever be done. Again, I'm not minimizing somebody's experienced the miracle of healing. I would rejoice with that miracle, but I would more greatly rejoice a thousand times over to hear about a person who was lost, who was the prodigal son, who had gone far beyond the boundaries of what you ever thought could happen, to be born again and to be brought into the kingdom of God by faith that would be given through the preaching of the word. And so these signs and miracles in the first part of the chapter and this incredible healing of this man in verses 8 through 10 are all pointing to the idea that not only does the power of God heal the outer man, but he heals the inner man. He heals the soul. If you're here this morning and you've got all kind of physical problems and difficulties with health, we would pray for you. We would certainly pray that the God of heaven would comfort you and be with you and, 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 and pray for healing for you. But we also pray for your soul. The point of the miracle is, again, is the opportunity for the preaching of the word of God with power. Now, what happens Next is fairly interesting. Your next blank says the confusion of the gods, verses 11 through 18. And then number one under that subheading is the patron gods of Lystra. This is fairly interesting, so I'm going to take a moment and explain it to you. Verses 11 through 13, after the healing of this man, what a, a joyful thing. He sprang up and began walking. And then verse 11 says, and when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker and the priest of Zeus whose temple was at the entrance to the city brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. Now you see how a miracle's not enough? The great miracle done, do these people know anything about the gospel? Not yet, they're hooping and hollering and they want to worship Zeus and Hermes and they want to have a festival right there to pagan deities. The miracle doesn't save you. The miracle points you to the Savior. And the Lord Jesus is who saves. And we're reminded of that in this passage. When they, when they saw what happened, it's so interesting that they sprung into action like this. There was a lot of confusion going on. And as a result, Paul and Barnabas found themselves thrusted into a local myth involving Zeus and Hermes, the patron gods of Lystra, the, the townspeople. Many of the commentaries say the townspeople were most likely influenced by a story from ancient folklore that had been preserved in Ovid's Metamorphosis. The myth recounts a time when Zeus and Hermes came to earth unannounced and disguised as regular people. 
when they arrived at Lystra and asked for food and lodging, everyone refused them. Finally, an older, hospitable couple who were peasants named Philemon and his wife Bacchus took them in. Their inhospitable neighbors were drowned in a flood sent by the vengeful gods. In return for their unselfish generosity, the married couple asked for two favors. One, to be caretakers caretakers of the temple, and two, to die together so that neither one would have to grieve the other. Their wishes were granted, supposedly, and the two were transformed into a pair of trees adorning the steps of the temple. Now, the people of Lystra had potentially heard this folklore, this story. It was familiar, part of their culture, and they wanted to be generous like Philemon and Bacchus were, so they hastily prepared a sacrifice in honor of Paul and Barnabas as they suspected that they must be gods. Determined not to repeat their ancestors' mistake, the people of Lystra began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was identified as the chief speaker. The identifications are intriguing that they identified Barnabas with Zeus suggests that he presented as a more distinguished and imposing appearance than Paul. Paul's identification with Hermes, the messenger of the gods, is perfectly logical since he was the chief speaker. Because the crowd spoke in the Lyconian language, neither Paul nor Barnabas could comprehend what was going on. So all this commotion is going on, and they're like, hey, hey, wait, wait a second, what's going on? And not to be outdone by the people, verse 13 talks about how there's a priest there, priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, so he brings in the fatted calf. He brings in the oxen and the garlands, and he throws them on, on, probably on Paul and Barnabas, and he brings it there, and he wants to make sacrifices there at the gate of the city. And, and if, if Zeus, by the way, had come back down to earth, he's thinking, then certainly we got to honor him, and i got to lead the people in worship. Something similar to this, remotely similar, happened to Paul a little bit later in the book of Acts. As you remember, they're on the Isle of Malta. They're making a fire. Paul's a prisoner. He gathers some sticks, throws them in the fire. A viper comes out, attaches to his hand. He shakes it off into the fire. They all watch him to be like, this must be a bad dude. He's probably a murderer or a criminal. And then when he doesn't die or have any effect from the bite, then they start to try to worship him there in the same way. Bottom line, unbelievers don't have a category for miracles that come from God. Unbelievers don't have a category for that because they don't believe in God. And since they don't believe in God, they assume any type of miracle they would see here in the first century, they would assume that it was either magic or that it was somehow their mythological gods have now come to life. So they're completely confused. And how did Paul and Barnabas respond to this? Number two, the humility of Paul and Barnabas, verses 14 and 15, but when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, I've already discussed to you that's lowercase apostle for Barnabas, uppercase for Paul, heard of it, when they heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. So when Paul and Barnabas finally understood what's going on, they rent their garments. They tore their garments, right? They're, they're, they're distraught. They're upset. They're, they're trying to, to humble themselves. Now, a false teacher would have loved the situation. A false teacher would have loved to have been deified. In fact, in one way or another, false religions always deify the head leader. 
The Roman Catholic Church has practically deified the Pope by calling him the vicar of Christ and to say that when he speaks ex cathedra, then he can speak no wrong. The Roman Catholic Church has also deified Mary by referring to her as the co-redemptress. The Mormon Church has deified Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and all of their followers by telling them that they can one day become a god. False teachers always pride themselves in being praised and having special recognition and special privileges. And oftentimes it has something to do with power, with money, or with sex. But how did Paul and Barnabas respond to this opportunity to be deified? I mean, they could have rode off in the sunset, worldly speaking, and just kind of been like gods in there, kind of like on that uh, Madagascar movie or something. They could have just kind of become gods for the rest of their life and been worshipped and praised. But no, right? That's not what happened. After tearing their garments, which is a sign of humility and distress, Paul and Barnabas said, men, why are you doing these things? I mean, they, they can't, but what are you doing? What things? Well, why are you praising us? Why are you revering us as gods? Why are you making sacrifices for us? We're all so men with like nature like you. They're saying we are just mere mortals. We are not gods. We are not divine. We have flesh and blood just like you. It could be very easy for any of us, maybe not to this level, but it could be very easy for us to receive the praise of men. It could be very easy for any of us to want to have our name out there as if we're some type of celebrity, to hang out with the stars, to be the envy of all of your friends, to be placed on a pedestal by the culture. Satan himself couldn't resist this temptation. He also wanted to be worshipped like God. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, we know, is discussing the origin of Satan, how have you fallen from heaven? O day star, son of the dawn, how are you cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low? You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, the far reaches of the pit. It's what happened to Satan. Anytime we are receiving the worship of men, we are trying to ascend in that moment to the heights of heaven. We are trying to place ourselves above the stars of God. We are trying to set our throne on high. We are trying to ascend above the heights in the clouds and to make ourselves like the most high. But can I just caution you and warn you, it always ends in disaster. You will have your moment in the sun, and then it will vanish, and it will be gone. That movie Elvis is coming out. I bet there's something like that in there, right? The beginnings of him, if you know about his story, I'm going ad-lib now, all right? But, but the beginning of that, grew up potentially in the church, grew up singing uh, songs that would uh, honor Christ, and then his life ended in a complete disaster. It could happen to any of us, whether it's on the grand scale and everybody knows your name, or whether it just happens in your own little kingdom. And if you're not careful, we begin to like too much the praise of men, and to set ourselves up in a way that, that we like to receive just a little bit of that glory. 
nothing wrong with thanking people and honoring people. And we want to say, hey, thank you for that. That means a lot to me. Thank you. Praise the Lord. That, that's the Lord's uh, doing in me, through me. That's fine. But we're saying when you start just kind of receiving it and you like to hear it just a little bit too much and you start to kind of share the glory with God, that's what we're talking about is, is, is a disaster. It will destroy you. God says in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other for my praise, nor my praise to carved idols. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Can I just ask you this morning, where does pride rear its ugly head in your life? Where are you tempted to think you deserve just a little bit more praise? What would you do if you were in a situation like Paul and Barnabas where others began to put you on a pedestal? Well, hopefully you would again reflect the glory all back to God. All of the honor and the praise and the glory belong to him. And that's why I love to worship with you through song. And that's why I lift my hands to heaven because I just want to say it's all about you, God. It's all about your name and your glory and your fame. And I'm nothing. I came from dust and I'll return to dust. And you got to keep that perspective because it's all about him. And that's in a sense what Paul and Barnabas are doing. What do you guys do? Don't look at me. It's all about him. And then we see how it ends, at least for today, halfway through the sermon. Number three, the proclamation of the true God. Verse 15, right in the middle of the verse, it says again, we're of like nature with you, and we bring good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and all the sea and all that is in them. It's almost like he's saying, hey, you're going to worship us because we healed this cripple guy? Let me tell you, there's something way more important, way more uh, necessary for you to learn and live. Don't look to any of your vain um, idolatry and uh, of your mythology uh, with Hermes and, and Zeus, but rather look to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. And he just starts going, creator God. You know, whenever he's preaching in the synagogue, he's going Old Testament from the scripture. Whenever he's preaching in a little bit more of a pagan context, as we'll find out in Acts 17, he just goes straight for creation. Because creation is, is, is a common revelation that's general for all people to know there's a God because of the heavens and the earth that we exist in. And in my conscience, according to Romans chapter 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. So it's a reminder, we, we can start with creation. The fact that you're alive today the fact the sun's shining today, it's all a gift from God. And now more than ever, while the text goes on to say there in verse 16, uh, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. So that's just a description of the long suffering of God, the patience of God, because the full revelation of Christ had not come out, the New Testament, Christ's life, death, and resurrection, a little patience here. And then we see in verse 18, or verse 19, sorry, 17, 17, yet he did not leave himself without witness. So he's saying, hey, all along, I was always pointing to Christ. It's always been about the Redeemer. Even Job talked about my Redeemer lives, for he did not 
for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. You know what he's saying? Should have known about me all along because I brought you rain and I brought you produce and I brought you crops and that wasn't you. And Jesus says this in Matthew 5:45. he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And the very fact that you're here today and you're alive, where did you get that house? You got it from God. Where'd you get that car? You got it from God. Where'd you get your job? Oh, but I worked hard. Where'd you get your life? You got it from God. He's the giver of all things. And he's just reminding them, everything you have, it's been from God. And so even with these words, verse 18, they were scarcely able to restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. He's talking about the glory of God and the sufficiency of God and the sustaining power of God and the generosity of God. And even with these words, verse 18 says, they could barely restrain the crowd from still desiring to worship them and to, to, to build altars to them, most likely, and to make sacrifices to them and to do all this stuff for them. And then in a moment, just as we've already seen over and over again, in just a moment, look at verse 19. But the Jews came from Antioch and from Iconium, the two previous places they've been, and having persuaded the crowds, which we've seen twice already, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him for being dead. It's amazing. Great work, horrible situation. Great work, horrible situation. The stoning of Paul, you see it in your outline. We'll look at the courage of Paul and Barnabas, verse 20, the continuation of the gospel ministry, and then we'll look at our third major point, perseverance in the return trip to Antioch, how they get back now from their first journey and give report of all the Lord had done. What are we looking at? We're looking at how Paul and Barnabas simply needed a Bible, a passport, in a first aid kit. That's what Paul and Barnabas needed on this journey. What do you need in your life today to get you through what it is God's called you to? Let me just ask you on that take-home application part. Do you speak in such a way that people listen to you when you share the gospel? Don't forget that about verse 1. They spoke in such a way. Don't be lazy and tired and yawning as you witness the gospel and the glories of Christ. Speak in such a way that would stir others up. Number two, how is the word of God more powerful than a miracle? Well, a miracle does something in the physical world. A miracle does something to the outer man. But the word of God changes your heart. And it gives new life through faith and repentance in him. Number three, are you staying humble even when others try to put you on a pedestal? Are you staying low to the ground at the foot of the cross realizing that it was your sin that drove those nails into his hands and feet. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, we want to invite you at the end of the last song. We'll have a few people standing right here by the door that goes into our prayer room. We'd love to talk to you about how you could come into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, how you could come to know him as your Lord and Savior. And it, and it, it requires you repenting and turning from your sin and your life as you know it putting all of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who died in your place so that you could have new life. Or if we could pray for you or encourage you in any way after the last song, we'd love to have, have an opportunity to minister to you right here. Why don't we pray together? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to see what we have seen here in Acts 14, a, a powerful text about the, the Holy Spirit's power working in and through Barnabas 
with the preaching of the gospel, with the signs and wonders, the, the healing of the crippled man, the, the thought that they might be a God. And yet, I just thank you for their faithfulness. We know Paul and Barnabas weren't perfect and they had their own struggles. And yet, here we see courage. We see boldness. We see humility. We see steadfastness. We see a reflection of the glory of Christ in everything they do and everything they say. Thank you that they were working together at this point. And I pray that you would just help us to glean much from what we've heard this morning to be able to discuss it with our families and with our church fellowship and to share with others so that we could continue to be conformed more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your love for us. We sing this last song in praise and worship to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.